An amethyst geode looks uh, kind of ugly and boring on the outside, but when you crack it open, uh, the beauty and the value are revealed. Well, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15 is similar. For many people, these verses seem ugly on the surface. Uh, they offend contemporary American values, so for many, the beauty is lost right from the beginning. But what beauty they miss. Uh, these few verses have sparked enormous controversy and fracture in the church. People argue, churches and denominations split, the culture demonizes the church. They're tough verses, and I guess I am going to deal with them this morning. <laughs> uh, it'd be easy to skip these verses, but then we'd miss part of God's marvelous plan for us, for the church. We'd miss greater blessing. We cannot allow culture to lure us away from God's best, nor allow culture to shape our interpretation of God's word. The Apostle Peter said that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, but he also considered them scripture, meaning Paul's letters carry the weight and the authority of God himself. It's true. Christians interpret uh, biblical doctrines in different ways, but that doesn't change the objective truth of Scripture, nor does it lessen the importance of understanding Scripture rightly, nor does it eliminate our responsibility to believe Scripture as God meant it. Believing what is true must always override believing what is convenient. Before unpacking the text, are you able to very honestly affirm these three simple statements this morning? I trust Jesus as my loving master. I trust that whatever my master tells me is best for me. I trust my master to give me a desire for his best and strength to obey him. Can you affirm all three of those? If so... Culture and your sinful flesh are not your master anymore, nor the determining factors in what you consider good. If we dislike these verses, we bite the hand that feeds us. We must receive these verses with joy, striving to see Christ's beauty in them. A few weeks ago, I received an email from a woman in our congregation her words show the, the beautiful demeanor Paul is advocating for women. Here are a few of her words. Thank you for preaching the hard things to us. If we truly want to learn and know the truth, we will not fight against hard things. We will study and dig deep in those more difficult things in God's word. What a beautiful heart. What a beautiful heart. This woman craves the truth, even if it's tough to hear. She's submissive to God and his word. After all, she loves and reveres God. She welcomes tough preaching because she treasures all of God's word. We, we all should have a heart, a beautiful heart like this woman. So let's begin here. Paul was giving instruction on how local churches should function. It is critical you understand 
that Paul's words here apply to the church and corporate worship. Not government, not business, the church. We're talking about the church. Listen closely to 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. God is is very kind to tell us in this book how church and corporate worship work best for his glory and our greatest good. So, with the church in mind... Beautiful women of God are commanded to learn scripture and theology. God's daughters should be scholarly, if you will. Paul said in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, this might surprise you, but verse 11 was radically countercultural in Paul's day and centuries after. The Talmud is a a main sacred text for Jews. It's composed of the Mishnah, a compilation of oral law, and the uh, Gemara, or Gemara, however you say that, a sort of commentary. Talmudic liturgy instructed every Jewish male to wake up in the morning and pray this prayer. Lord God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Women were commonly considered intellectually and academically inferior to men. Religious chauvinism was common and accepted. The Jerusalem Talmud asserted this, quote, Rather should the words of the Torah, or God's law, be burned than entrusted to a woman. I read that women played a very small role in the public life of the synagogue, And that the Babylonian Talmud said that, quote, the men came to learn, the women came to hear. Historically, in Judaism, women were considered inferior to men. So when Paul said, let a woman learn, he was negating a cultural and religious misconception of women. He he was anchoring his teaching in God's good created design and not culture. Jesus Christ honored women, taught women, and considered them disciples worthy uh, of his time and attention. And Paul was echoing the attitude of Christ in his teaching. Now, when you were in school, did your teachers have rules? Well, of course they did. Of course they had rules. No talking. That was probably the biggest one. Stay in your seat. No throwing things or, or whatever the rules were. The rules help maintain order so that learning could flourish. Quiet and God-focused women in corporate worship help promote learning and focused adoration of God. The men who aren't teaching should be quiet too. And quiet is a better translation than silent. Women were to be peaceful, discreet, and reverent in the public worship of God. Martha's sister Mary beautifully illustrates Paul's point here. Luke recounts the scene. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and asked, Lord, 
Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Do you know what preaching is? Uh, through the mouth of the preacher, explaining and applying the text, the master, Jesus Christ, meets with us and feeds us his word for our benefit. Ladies, the preaching and teaching of God's word is for you. Through preaching, you commune with Christ. And he nourishes, strengthens, and trains you to be like him. Your quietness invites his presence and his care for you. Now, what does all submissiveness mean? Well, first understand that submission is not a dirty word. I think this needs to be said. American individualism spurns submission. But wrongfully so. Submission is beautiful. Consider the beautiful manner of Jesus. He told his father, not my will, but yours be done. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 talks about Jesus submitting to God. Jesus perfectly submitted to God's law. In Luke 2, mind-blowing stuff, Jesus was submissive to his imperfect parents. True submission True submission, as the Bible talks about it, is inherently beautiful because our preeminent Christ did it for the glory and pleasure of God. Perhaps submission is distasteful for us because we have sought fulfillment in autonomy and selfish ambition instead of God's call to Christ-like humility and sacrifice. God's call for women to learn with all submissiveness is a call to find fulfillment in obeying God completely by his spirit's power. Ladies, when Christ is most precious to you, grace will make submissiveness your heart's desire as a beautiful way to experience the closeness of God. Men, submission is for you as well. 2 Corinthians 9.13 and Ephesians 5.21. To whom are women to submit here? Consider that corporate worship is the context, that Paul used the word learn, that Paul explained eldership in the next chapter, and that the New Testament connects preaching, teaching, and governing to the role of elder. So I understand all submissiveness here in this text to mean three simple things. Number one, women should submit themselves completely to God. Number two, women should submit themselves completely to God's word. And number three, women should submit themselves completely to the elders whom God appoints to teach and govern the church. It isn't blind and undiscerning, universal submission to the elders. Submission never, ever means disobeying God. But 
godly women should willingly and joyfully place themselves under the gospel teaching and authority of the elders, plural, that God graciously gives her. Men do this too. In fact, even elders submit to their fellow elders. So ladies, Jesus loves you. He loves you. He really cares about you. And he knows what's best for you. Jesus will tenderly care for you as you listen quietly and submissively to biblical preaching and teaching in corporate worship. It's how he pours his grace into your life. Now, the next point may turn up the heat a little bit for some of you. So consider this quote from Dr. Philip Riken first. Very helpful. He said this. Which is more likely, that the Bible is out of date or that our culture is out of line? God's word critiques every culture, often the scripture that most shocks and surprises us or even angers and offends us is the scripture we most need to hear. Here's the next point. Beautiful women of God, do not teach or exercise authority over men within the church, but rather focus on their God-given roles. That's a bold statement. That's a bold statement. But the question is, is it a true statement? That's what we should care about. So let me show you three things. Number one, Paul's clear command. Number two, Paul's first reason. Number three, Paul's second reason. Here's Paul's clear command. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Again, this relates to the church and corporate worship. The ESV leaves this out, but Paul used the Greek conjunction de or but, which links verse 12 back to verse 11. In other words, Paul does want women to learn in the public assembly, but he does not permit them to teach in the public assembly. So let's break this down. Paul said, I do not permit. Now, is he just being a male chauvinist, letting his old Paul opinion come out? Because he just lived in that time period when the men were weird and crazy. Was this his opinion? Be very careful with how you think through this. Recall what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Christ chose and commissioned men to be apostles, to establish the doctrinal foundation of the church. As an apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul was building here a doctrine of the church. Understand, Paul's prohibitions are Christ's prohibitions, precisely because Christ gave Paul apostolic authority. That's very important to understand. Notice in verse 12, that Paul coupled teaching and exercising authority. If a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man in church, who should teach and exercise authority? 
Please think carefully now. In the next chapter, Paul said, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul then used exclusively male language to describe elders, which corresponds with with verse 12 and requires overseers to be able to teach. In 1 Timothy 5.17, just a little later in this uh, letter, Paul said this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Elders exercise authority and some labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3, is addressed to elders of local churches all across the world. The apostle Peter told those elders, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In Acts 20, Paul called the elders of Ephesus now, same group of people attached to Timothy here, he called them overseers of the church of God. In, for, in uh, Titus 1.5, Paul reminded Titus of his directive to appoint elders in every ta- town. Then in verse 7, Paul used the word overseer in reference to elders. And in verse 9 said, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul instructed Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, Now, can you draw the right conclusion there? God's design is for qualified male elders to teach God's word and exercise authority in the church. That is an unmistakable, the unmistakable pattern in Scripture. You will see nothing different. Now, Paul didn't mention the office of elder in verse 12, but he did mention functions inherent to the office of elder. God doesn't permit women to do the functions, therefore neither does he permit them to hold the office. And at this point, I should say, please listen closely, most men in the local church are either not qualified to teach and exercise authority according to chapter 3 or not called to teach and exercise authority. Though verse 12 is, is directed to women, it is equally true of unqualified and uncalled men. Paul ended the verse with rather she is to remain quiet. Rather shows an emphatic contrast here. An emphatic contrast. So rather than teaching and exercising authority in the public assembly of the church, women should remain quiet. And quiet is certainly connected here to the preaching and oversight of the church which Paul just mentioned. Verse 12 does not universally prohibit women from speaking or talking or even teaching in the context of the church. 
Now, if you study Colossians 3.16, Titus 2, Acts 16, verse 1, 2 Timothy 2, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 15, and Acts 18, 24 through 28, you'll see women are to teach in the church. They should sing and worship. They should teach other women. They should teach children. And like Priscilla, if you study her situation with her husband, Aquila, sometimes teach men in private. Women should evangelize. Women should, some women, not all women, some women should write books and, and speak at conferences. Women should be theologically erudite. But God does not want women teaching or exercising authority in the organized and assembled church. That is reserved for qualified and called men. And the coming weeks are going to help us uh, unpack and really solidify that point. So you're going to want to hang, hang tough in the coming weeks. Dr. Reichen very helpfully clarifies this. What he writes is not intended to govern men and women in every situation, but applies especially to those occasions when the church gathers for the preaching of the word of God. He added this. The main thing that God forbids women to do is to preach or to exercise the doctrinal and disciplinary authority that is tied to the preaching ministry. Now... At this point, it is very important for us to understand the rationale of Paul. What is his reason for this? He has to give us something that we can hold on to. All right, And you'll notice that his rationale is not that women are inferior or incapable in any way. Nor is it cultural or church circumstances. He heads straight to how God created men and women. Here's Paul's first reason. Verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. The, the word for or because makes verses 13 and 14 Paul's reasons for writing verse 12. Paul appeals to the created order in Genesis 1 through 3 to explain why women should not teach and exercise authority in the church. Study Genesis 1 through 3. It's going to answer a lot of questions for you. Hopefully I can help you see this here. Adam and Eve were created in God's image as equal vice-regents of creation. They were created male and female, beautifully distinct, beautifully different, but entirely equal. Adam was formed first. That's how the order went. God determined it. Then Eve, and God fashioned Eve as a helper suitable or fit for Adam. They complemented each other. Adam was given spiritual headship from the very beginning. God designed Adam for that responsibility. Adam's headship is, is uh, confirmed in Genesis 3 when God sought Adam after they had sinned and then chastised Adam for sinning, saying in verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. God gave Adam the responsibility to lead his wife, spiritually, to protect her, to serve her, to lay his life down for her. But Adam relinquished that responsibility, allowed her to be deceived, and let her lead. 
His spiritual failure as head of his wife and representative of all humanity is why Scripture blames Adam for the fall. Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man. Verse 15 adds, For if many died through one man's trespass. Look, I'm a man. What about Eve? Come on. She started the whole thing. It was her fault. Oh, no, 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 no. No. Adam failed. Adam failed by failing to love and lead his wife. And that's why scripture places the responsibility of humanity's fall on Adam. Paul's comments, they harmonize with the biblical concept of primogeniture where firstborn sons were given special rank. And we've talked about this in reference to Christ in the past. Were given special rank and responsibility, spiritual responsibility for the family. Essentially, they became the heads of their household. Adam was formed first. So from the created order on, it was God's design for men to take spiritual leadership in marriage, in family, and for some qualified men, the church. This is God's rationale for 1 Timothy 2.12. So then, women are not forbidden to teach and exercise authority in the church because they are inferior and incapable. And neither are qualified men called, qualified and called men, given the responsibility to teach and exercise authority because they are superior and more capable. Verse 12 depends on God's created order and the design of men and women. Paul gave a second reason. He said, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We must be very careful with this. People draw a very um, wrong conclusion from this. This does not mean that women are more gullible than men. That's not the point. That's not the point. Eve was deceived, absolutely. But worse, Adam was standing with her when she was deceived. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she, gave, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam was not deceived. Adam consciously rebelled against God. He knew what Eve was doing. He knew what he was doing, relinquished his spiritual authority, and followed his wife into sin and the destruction of all humanity. He failed in his God-given role. He failed to love his wife. And the consequences have been Horrific. Absolutely horrific. Why didn't Adam kill the snake, grab his wife's hand, and lead her to safety? They could have huddled under some tree and started eating stuff and talking and stuff. You know? What's he doing messing around with this talking snake? He failed. Please listen carefully. He failed. So another groom would have to come and rescue his wife. Eve violated God's holy law and became a transgressor because she was deceived. But Adam violated God's holy law and became a 
excuse me, transgressor in bold-faced rebellion against God. Do you understand why the scripture places responsibility on Adam for the fall? Now, some clowns might think, hey, mad dude. Men should be pastors and preachers and have authority in the church because men are better, stronger, all right, and, and uh, less gullible than those women. Just think of Eve. I've got scripture to bag it up. Well, that's ridiculous, and he's an idiot. Um, listen, does Adam's train wreck of spiritual leadership somehow suit men for the pastoral ministry more than women? Verse 12 has everything to do with God's created design and nothing to do with inequalities or inferiorities between the sexes. Sadly, I think some men, some love and abuse verse 12 because of selfish, reckless, and lazy sexism instead of love for God, his word, and their precious sisters in Christ. So regardless of the cultural perspective, regardless of what many churches practice and accept, we are on solid ground to say biblically, beautiful women of God do not teach and exercise authority over men within the church, but rather focus uh, on their God-given roles. Women, there are so many Christ-exalting roles we need you to fill in the church. We desperately need you. We cannot do this without you. But allow me to highlight one role to pull from many. It's a teaching role. I believe that if more women were more faithful in this one role, they might bring revival to the American church. There are many important roles that women play, but this one, I believe, is thoroughly neglected in American evangelical Christianity, and yet it is so powerful. So here it is, Titus 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. If more women devoted themselves to this teaching ministry, I think Christ would use them in huge ways. A whole lot of young women would be extremely blessed. Marriages and families would be much stronger and churches would grow. I think too many Christian women have bought the lies of culture and feminism and have been thoroughly distracted from this incredible teaching role that they are uniquely fitted for. They're suited for this. In my experience, and this is my experience, but it squares with Scripture. The strongest, godliest, and most effective women in the church are women who understand and apply 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. That's been my experience. Well, we still have verse 15, which is very hard to understand. Okay? So I'll just say I'm not sure I understand what Paul is saying. 
Okay, so you do the study. But as the British say, I'll crack on. Uh, here's the point I want to make. Women are saved by grace, alone, through faith, alone, in Christ, alone. All right, Paul said, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Paul does not and cannot mean that women are saved from their sin because they have kids. That is impossible for it to mean that. Paul consistently taught salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. Now, scholars are all over the place on this, but I think one interpretation makes a lot of sense. So I'll highlight several observations from the text and then bring them, hopefully, bring them together for you to make a, a conclusion that I hope is clear. First, the verb saved is most often used by Paul in reference to redemption. It can mean other things, but it's most often redemption. And it's in the third person singular, not plural. So it reads, yet she will be saved. Now, considering Paul's allusion to Genesis 1 through 3, I think he was referring to Eve directly and all women from Eve indirectly. Second, Childbearing has a definite article in the Greek. So the sense of verse uh, 15 is like this. Yet she will be saved through the bearing of a child. Third, it is through the bearing of a child, not by the bearing of a child. Through seems to suggest that the bearing of a child is the conduit through which salvation comes. Fourth, considering Paul alluded to Genesis 1 through 3, it would not be a stretch to say that Paul was alluding to Genesis 3.15. Listen to what God told the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring is a he who will conquer the serpent. Now put the pieces together. Eve was deceived and she became a transgressor. She would die in her sin. But God gave her gospel. God promised to bring from her an offspring. From Eve, the mother of humanity, a child would eventually be born, a savior to conquer evil. Paul was reminding women that from the woman Eve, a great savior has come into the world to save. And Paul wrote in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman. Born under the law. So I think that the first half of verse 15 refers to Jesus Christ being born from Eve's line or born from a woman, the coming of salvation in human flesh. And the second half of verse 15 clarifies how that salvation is obtained, faith. Paul switched from the singular she to the plural they in the second half of verse 15. So the way women and I'll add, and men receive salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. God saves women by granting them enduring faith. God pours his love into women, works his grace in women, 
empowers women to grow in holiness and produces in women self-control. There was no greater honor bestowed on any woman than to bring Christ into the world to rescue God's people. Salvation was in the womb of a woman. But salvation is only for the women who continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Perseverance in Christ proves salvation. We need this gospel. We need this gospel. Inside of, of each of you ladies and all of us is a natural tendency to rebel against God's authority and word and to believe the lies of Satan, believe the lies of culture, and believe the lies of the world. We, we don't innately want to submit to the role that God gives us, any of us. We, we naturally want to do it our own way. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. But the gospel says that Christ perfectly submitted himself to God's will for him. God's role for him. Do you think his role was easy? Submitted himself the entire way to the cross. Christ submitted where you failed. In order to save you from sin and in order to break you from bondage, in order to break you from the power of sin. As you trust in Christ, as you enjoy fellowship and union with Christ, he creates in you an ever-increasing desire to sit at his feet and to learn quietly with all submission so that you can submit to his beautiful role for you, for his glory, for his delight, for your joy. Ladies, if you attempt to treasure and obey these verses apart from vital and intimate fellowship with Christ, you won't do this. You won't. You'll fight against it. You'll get angry about it. You'll find some scholar that says something different so you can justify yourself. But you won't do this because your flesh doesn't want to do it. It's not natural for our flesh to do this, to submit for any of us. But this is the beautiful part of the gospel. Your spirit does want to submit. Your spirit does want to do this. So as you treasure and depend on Christ, he will help you see verses 11 through 15 as a beautiful and as a worthy way to display the glory and beauty of Christ. The glory and beauty of Christ. And he'll help you treasure this unique role and find joy in it. I think Jesus designed things uniquely for women, men and women so that we could together display the fullness of his glorious character. Imagine if you miss your role because you just want to be a man. Imagine what that does. But imagine when we work together in mutual love and respect for what God has called us to do, how that exalts King Jesus. 
How that makes him look amazing. And how when we're so countercultural to do something that everybody else thinks is completely ridiculous. How that makes our, uh, us look that we are sold out to his word. What he tells us to do. We're actually serious about this guy. We love him. We cherish him. And so yes, I will gladly do what he calls me to do in every area of my life. Because it is him I want to glorify. It is him I want to magnify. It is his traits that I want to show to be glorious and supreme in my life. Culture will not help you enjoy the beauty of Christ in these verses. It will not help you. But Christ will, Christ will. Entrust yourself, ladies and men. Entrust yourself to your master. He loves you. He promises to care for you as the perfect God-man and head of us all. Let's pray. Father, your son is beautiful. He is preeminent in all things, and that means he is the head of the church. All of us bow the knee to his authority. All of us fall before him and confess that he is alone, the leader and pastor and good shepherd and preeminent one, the anointed one, the Christ, the one commissioned to lead us. We have no other leader other than Christ alone. And we thank you for him. We thank you for his good word. God, this should be so sweet for us today because in it, we're, we're seeing the, the beautiful submission and sovereign plan of Christ. God, it, it, it is your plan, and Christ carried it out in perfect submission. And so I ask, God, that you help us to see the beauty of it. I pray for our sisters in Christ. God, that you would make them more beautiful than ever because of their quietness, submissiveness, scholarliness, their erudition, their intelligence, their courage. I want to encourage them to be who God intended, uh, intended them to be. And I pray that they see that as a great role that we need them to play and that they will take immense delight in it, that you would bless them. And thank you for the strong and courageous women that we have seen model these verses quite well with so, so much maturity and strength. I pray that you would lift those women up and encourage them. All for your sake, God. Watch over your church. In Jesus' name, amen.